Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Keith Davies, the CTO of Ag Data, and we discuss building company culture from the ground up, obsessing on the customer and not on the competition, and solving problems that have a multiplier effect for your team. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hi there. How are you, my friend? Good. How are you? Fantastic. It's a beautiful nice. day. Where are you calling in from? Charlotte. Charlotte? Come on. It's a, good <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little overcast here. Is it? Yeah. Nice, nice. I love I love that mountainous area. Yeah, it's nice. Some good hiking. Yes, it is. We go up to um let's see. We usually go up to like Blairsville, Georgia. And then there's like an area where all the states come together. Okay. And then we do some hiking up in there. That's a lot yeah, of fun. nice. Yeah, there's some nice hiking around Asheville, which is uh, maybe an hour and a half northwest of Charlotte. Nice, nice. So I'm curious to know, can you tell me a little bit about AG Data? Yeah, so Ag Data um, is really a company that's, we've been around for over 30 years. We, uh, you know, like a lot of companies, we, we started by working very closely with some of our customers, which are tier one manufacturers in the agricultural space. Um, and, you know, as you, as you start out as a, a startup company, you're building exactly what that customer needs. And you then, as you start to grow your, your base of customers, you realize that you're building the same thing multiple times. And so you go from this this idea of how do I build a solution just for this customer to how do I start to build products where I can, I can sell the same solution to multiple different customers. And then after you've started to do that, then you realize, well, I could actually build a platform and I can start to bring all of the data together and I can start to analyze different trends in the industry and I can provide higher value added services and products, product offerings to customers. And so over the course of really the last, let's say, five years, we've made that journey from being a company that's very focused on creating specialized solutions to customers to creating products to creating platforms. And so where we are now is that we've got a data platform and uh, you know, that, that runs in the cloud. We have uh, analytics that we deliver on top of that. And, uh, and, and so that's from a technical perspective, that's our solution. From a business perspective, what ag data does is uh, it's, you could think of it similar to airline loyalty programs. And so, you know, if you're flying on American Airlines, the more you fly, the better access to seats you have, uh, the more you can get your bags checked for free. Um, in the agricultural industry, the more products you buy from a manufacturer, the more cash you get back from that same manufacturer at the end of the season. And so what Ag Data, at Ag Data, what we do is we're, we're really the ones that are working with the entire supply chain and uh, we're collecting all of those point of sales transactions. And so uh, the way that it works is that when, a, uh, when, one manuf when the manufacturer sells the product to a distributor, um, mm -hmm. what they're doing is um, they're... We're, uh, their distributor buys the product, we keep track of, of the sales, that take place, uh, a distributor then sells it to a retailer. So you might have, um, 
a distributor in the Northeast, you might have multiple uh, retailers in North Carolina. And, and those retailers are selling the products to uh, an end grower. And, uh, and so the, this is how the farmer gets things like fungicides and pesticides and fertilizers to actually grow the crop. So we keep track of all the inventory, we keep track of all the point of sales transactions. And at the end of the uh, year, uh, we tell the, the manufacturers who they owe and how much they owe. That's amazing. As we're sitting here talking about this, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, man, you know, I know somebody who was talking to me about this. And, <laughs> and so I pull up my email, I'm like, Daniel Heckman, like Dan yes. Heckman. He, yes, that's right. <laughs> he referred, that's how we ended up connecting with him. Exactly. That's right. I've shared this story on this, on the show before, because I thought it was so interesting when he was describing how the disconnect happens and that the incentives are a way to connect data back right. to who purchased it because they just sell them to these big warehouses that then resell them. And I was like, That's Oh, right. I couldn't even think about that. And when he started sharing with me, like the size of the business of ag data and everything, I was like, that's a big business just connecting yes. their lost That's customers right. to them. That's right. Absolutely. And so, you know, we, um, we're collecting, um, you know, billions of dollars worth of, of point of sales transactions from all the way through the agricultural sector. So let's talk about Dan. Yeah. <laughs> so have you known him a while? No. So I, I uh, first met Dan when, uh, before I interviewed with, uh, with Ag Data. So I've been here almost exactly a year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I came from General Electric where I was uh, started as one of the CTOs there. And um, Dan was, uh, was with our CEO, uh, Heffy Provost, in California. I met the two of them uh, uh, for coffee and uh, we just started talking and you know there's a there's a lot of parallels between what GE and a lot of other companies are doing from a data and analytics perspective and what ag data are doing and so I thought it was a pretty neat opportunity something that really interested me but that's how the conversation started so where are you located then so we're based in Charlotte we have uh, so you're another... not in Tampa no no so Dan Dan is in Tampa and okay. Dan came up, uh, you know, on a weekly basis. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cause like, <laughs> yeah, I know we said Charlotte earlier, but I'm like, maybe some, sometimes people say that they're where their headquarters are and right. they're actually somewhere else or <laughs> 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 they're visiting. All right, right. So help me, help me fill in this picture. I got, I have you working at GE as a CEO, right. which is, right just a baller role as far as street cred goes, right? Yeah. Um, you don't really get bigger than that. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Lead, lead technologist at a massive engineering company. And and you're in intelligent platforms over there. You're there, what, four or five years? Right. And, and so then why ag data? Like, what was the hook? Like, what what drew you there? Yeah, you know, one of the things I think that, that really interested me, and, and so my background is before GE, I was at ABB, and ABB is sort of the European equivalent of, of GE, so okay. another large conglomerate. And, um, you know, I, when, I was at, uh, when I was at those large companies, I really um, had a strong desire to get back to smaller companies where, you know, you can really focus on building great products, innovating for customers, and so that was that was part of it. The other part of it was that um, really the mission, which is how can we 
how can we really help the, the agricultural industry? How can we help to uh, make our customers more efficient in their operations? And at the end of the day, there's a much larger mission, uh, which our customers are after, which is how do we feed the world? And so if there are some little things that we can do uh, for that broader vision, that broader objective, then uh, I think it's pretty exciting. And I think the, the final thing would be, if you think about the agricultural industry, you know, it's not, it hasn't been historically you know, on the, the leading tip of technology. And so now what you're starting to see in the agricultural sector is a lot of businesses starting to digitize. And so they're starting to, to think about data and analytics. They're starting to think about how can they bring disparate data stores together? How can they start to mine that information to gain new insights into their business? And so that problem just really excited me. And, and there were a lot of parallels to some of the things that we've worked on at GE. So the other day I'm driving and I'm in Florida. And so there's cow pastures everywhere. <laughs> right. Right. And I just had this like daydream. I was like, I wonder if any of those cows have sensors inside their stomachs. Do you, do you think that's a thing? <laughs> so, so it's interesting with, with cattle. And so, you know, many cattle now have ear, ear tags and uh, those ear tags have sensors in them and you can, you can follow the, the path of the cattle around, uh, you know, around the, the farm. And you can really, what you can do is you can start to gauge whether that, that uh, the cattle are, are healthy or not. And so an interesting thing that we did at GE um, was that we had a product uh, and it was in our, uh, our monitoring and diagnostics uh, product line where we monitored cows and we went up head to head against farmers. And the, the objective was to be able to see who can identify a sick cow first, our software or, or, the, or the farmer, the cowboy. And, you know, of course, and, and this was something that we continually run into in every single domain, the cowboy will say, well, of course, I can just look at the, at the, at the cattle, the cow, and determine whether it's healthy or not. I can put my hand on it and, and I can just, I can tell. And, um, you know, and so what we did is we leveraged these sensor readings and we were able to look at how much is a, a, a cow migrate, you know, are they, is it? in amongst the rest of the herd, how much is it drinking, how much is it eating, how much is it sleeping. And, you know, and cows are just like people, right? When they're sick, they don't want to be around other people, they don't want to eat, they don't want to drink. And, and so we ran the first trial and we were able to predict that these cattle were actually sick and we were able to predict that much earlier than the cowboy. And so then, then uh, the feedback was, okay, well, that was luck. Anybody could do it the first time. And so what we did was we ran a second more in-depth trial and we won the second time as well. And so, you know, that's, you know, I mentioned that story because I think what you're starting to see in, in the agricultural industry and in the animal health industry is a lot of sensor enabling cattle. You can sensor enable your dog, for example, and, and see you can basically put a Fitbit on your dog and you can see. What about my wife? <laughs> <laughs> You're moving around in those patterns, honey. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, but you, can, you can really start to see what's happening with both, uh, you know, is it called production animal, which, you know, cattle and uh, or companion animal, your cats and dogs. 
So let's let's talk a little bit about technology, teams, leadership. I want to bring some context to the conversation, right? Because it's different when someone's leading 10,000 people versus 10 people, things like that. Mm-hmm. So what is your current team size? Uh, what's the structure of, of you know, your office of the CTO type deal within your current current organization? Yeah, so we're 60 people right now. Okay. Um, within those 60 people, we're... Uh, we're organized around scrum teams, so very much an agile shop. Um, we have uh, we have uh, development managers leading those scrum teams. Those scrum teams are comprised of developers and QA team members. Um, we have um, we have then a leader of the quality organization who uh, is putting in place best practices. Um, new uh, processes and techniques that we can use to apply automated testing and and increase our validation of the software. But, you know, we're, we're a pretty flat organization. And so one of the things, you know, when I was at ABB, I had a team of 650 people um, at, at GE, a team of over 300 people. And, you know, one of the things here that I really wanted to do was to determine how can we take the money that we have within engineering and really invest it so that we're getting as much output as possible. And so I've really reduced the number. I only have two uh, development managers. Um, I've really tried to flatten the organization out as much as possible. Um, I would say just one of the things that that requires is you've really got to have top talent uh, in, in the positions. And so that model only works when you're able to have you're able to provide um, direction to the teams and the teams are then able to figure it out themselves. Uh, and so what we've spent a lot of time on is making sure that we can, we can attract top talent with our mission and the technology that we're using, the products that we're building. And, and we've really worked with a number of both internal recruiters and external recruiters to find uh, top software development talent within the Charlotte area and even from beyond. Give me, give it a shout out real quick. What technology stack you use? Who do you look for? So, um, so we're based on the Microsoft stack. Um, so, you know, we're in terms of the cloud, we're building in Azure. In terms of, um, you know, we're using ASP.NET Bootstrap. We're using Angular, uh, SQL Server as a backend. Um, and so, those are those are really we're using MicroStrategy as a as a reporting and analytics package to visualize trends that we're seeing. But, but those are the primary technologies that we're using. What I would say is, um, you know, we're absolutely interested in anyone that's using those technologies and that's interested in solving big problems. Um, at the same time, I think we're, we're also interested in, in people that understand how to architect and understand how to design. Because it's one thing to, to um, do the implementation, but we're building pretty complex systems that have a number of other systems that they integrate with. And, and so I'm actually interviewing someone today for a role where there it's an architect role, but it's, it's really focused in two areas. One is working internally to see how do we, how do we put the various pieces together within ag data to, to build this product, but it's also being able to talk about that overall solution with our customer so that we're able to create a, a trusted advisor relationship with them. And so people that are able to really, people that are able to build complex software with the art of making it simple, 
-hmm. I think is a very unique skill set, and and that's something else we're looking for. All right, so this is perfect. I love I, this is why I like doing the podcast this way. So you're interviewing someone today for an architect position. That's right. All right, let's let's dive a little deeper into that. Um, sure. So we're gonna this call is going to be amazing because it's also going to prepare more for the uh, for the interview. Tell me about what that person could do to win you over. So one of the things would be um, the ability to have worked on architecting and designing complex software systems, systems that involve uh, multiple feeds coming into this, this system. Um, and so there's the ability to be able to ingest data, cleanse data, transform it, and store it in a, a canonical model is important to us so that we can run analytics on top of that. So that's one thing, just being able to, to work on these complicated systems. I think another one is the ability to really be a mentor, be a teacher. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the world of software and, and, and kind of that model that I described where we've got a pretty, pretty flat organization. Um, it really requires the ability to communicate well. And so I'm looking for somebody that can, can take that design and really whiteboard it, but also work closely with, with software developers to be able to, to communicate how that architecture works, what they need to do as we write our stories to be able to implement that. Um, and then finally, there's, a, there's the piece that I mentioned where um, there's also an external component. And so I'm looking for someone that is very comfortable talking with customers, communicating architecture. But, but not just talking about our piece, but talking about it more from a systems level perspective. So talking about how our solution fits in the broader ecosystem that that customer has. I love it. So you need this person to not only be able to design, build, deploy architecture, but also have that professional ability to communicate with outside customers about architecture. Absolutely. And, and the systems design as a whole. So they come in as, so you can show them off, right? Like this is our team. This is someone who's articulate, magnetic, a leader. And exactly. they are also the person that's actually doing the work. Exactly. Yeah. So, so often in the smaller companies, those they're, that's how you become more valuable in the smaller companies. That's it's right. easier to become more valuable in a smaller company than it is in a larger company because in the larger company, they have the resources to split the roles in such mm -hmm. an isolated way. But right. at your company, it's like to be, a, to be a valuable team player, you have to not only be able to contribute technically, but contribute on the professional skill side of things too. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I've, that I've observed working for both large and small companies is large companies want to be small companies. They want to act like a small company. And so what I mean by that is a large company will often try to figure out how, how do we become more agile? How do we become more dynamic in the marketplace? How do we get closer to our customers? And small customers, uh, small companies always think, how do I get big? And so what are the, what are the, the ideas that I can work on that are going to resonate in the marketplace. And so it's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic and in that, you know, either when you're, when you're in a large or small company, there's a couple things like really understanding your customers, understanding the problems that they're encountering, obsessing on your customers rather than your competition. Um, and just the fact that design matters, style matters, the user experience that your customers have matter. Those are, for me, the, some of the things that, regardless of the size of the company, really cut across and, and really differentiate your software. 
obsessing on your customers over your competition. That's, that's a quotable. <laughs> give me, give me a couple of ways that I could actually do that. How could I obsess on my customers over my competition? Well, one of the things that we do is we really try to understand what are the problems that our customers are facing? What is it that they're trying to do? And so you need to, to put yourself in the personas that you're representing with your software. So, you know, our, our software is used quite frequently by, by uh, sales leaders and sales reps. And we try to put ourselves in the position of our customer to understand at the end of the day, what's going to make our customer and that specific persona successful. And, uh, and so we obsess on how do we make our customers, you know, how do they achieve their, their quotas? How do they, they exceed their quotas? How do they become just uh, a shining example within, within that, uh, that company? And, and so we think about that and that's how we try to design our software. That's how we try to design the user experience. I love it. Now let's talk about how they could lose you really fast. <laughs> like, right. Like what are, what are some things, and you know, obviously not like too extreme, but what are some things that sort of strike you as red flags for this interview? You mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I would say what I'm absolutely not looking for, and this is sort of the, you know, I grew up as a software developer, so I absolutely understand the, the stereotype, but you know, I'm not looking for a developer that wants to stay in his, in his office for eight hours a day and, and uh, you know, sit behind the computer for eight hours writing code or building diagrams. This is, you know, the, our world is, and, and especially so because we're a flat organization, it's really important that you can communicate and that you can, the, the way that we go fast is by being able to take ideas and push them out to the entire team very quickly and to be able to take what's in one person's head and distribute that and disseminate that across the entire team. So I'm looking for somebody that is a great communicator. And so the lack of being able to communicate, the lack of um, a desire to be want, uh, to want to talk to people, that, that would be one way to lose me quickly. Another way would be um, just a lack of, of technical depth. And so I think one of the things that I found is that there are a lot of people that will talk about data and analytics at a 50,000 foot level, right? You can, you can sort of um, flip through the, the yellow pages or take a drive down the road and see any number of companies that will claim to be a data and analytics company. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a very popular buzzword. And so in this role, it's important that you can drill down successive layers from there to actually be able to implement and architect a solution. And so, you know, to do that, you need to have run into some pain points. You need to have failed in the past and you, you learn from those failures. Um, you, you also um, need to be able to convey a real understanding of a variety of different technologies. So that's another thing that I'm looking for. Nice. Do you have any like favorite questions? How do you prepare for an interview? Yeah. I, you know, I like to, I like to ask a lot of open-ended questions. And so, you know, I'll, I'll always start by talking about our vision as a company, um, where we're going in engineering and how this role fits in with all of that. So that the, when I'm interviewing a candidate, they understand that they're part of a much larger and broader vision and that we've linked everything together. So there's no questions about how does this role, is it strategic to where we're going? It's absolutely strategic. 
So, so that's kind of the first part is just to frame it in the right context. And then from there, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of talk through, you know, what I'll, I'll dive into um, what the, the, that individuals, that candidates, uh, current responsibilities and assignments and talk through what are they working on? How does that relate to the, the uh, opportunity that we have? And just, just ask open-ended questions so I can get them to start to talk about what do they do as, as part of their normal routine? What are some of the pain points that they've run into? Um, just, you know, one question that I always ask, and you get surprisingly honest answers on it, is if I were to talk to your manager and I would ask them for three positive things about you, as well as three things that they would say that you need to work on, um, you know, this could have come up during your, your last performance review, what would they say? And, and it's amazing the, the type of very honest answers you get on the part around how would, what are the things that they would ask you to improve? Oh, are you asking me? Do I have to do this? Now, <laughs> <laughs> now here's the thing, though, as I'm thinking about it, um, I'm good with the positive, right? Because yeah. everyone's usually pretty aware of the things that they're really great at. Right. But the thing I would have to say is the negative things that I have on my list are all on my radar. Yeah. So it's not like I'm pulling them out of thinking about them right now. Like when I think of them, they're, right. they're not hard to come by because yeah. I've been thinking about them. Yeah. And I'm always trying to improve. And I don't think I, like, I don't have three things that I'm pulling out of the dusty attic. Right, right. right. I have, right. I always have these set of things that I'm like, ah, oh, I need to be improving here. Or I need to be improving there. And I get better at them. I actually carry around. I'm a, I'm a crazy person. This is a um, goals. Like okay. a sheet. And yeah. so when I come up with uh, something I want to hit, a goal I want to hit, you see, this is our sales plan. Um, <laughs> It is. I'll tell you, it's far more effective having a sales plan on a piece of paper that's always in your pocket yeah, than it absolutely. is to be on some corporate slide deck somewhere that you never see again after typing it up. Absolutely. Um, but we track it. You can see here, week over week, we have dates on the week over week over week. Right. And we are tracking um, our meetings and we are increasing our meetings from three a week to 20 a week. And right now we're at 11. So okay. week, in week three, we went from, we started out with three meetings a week in week one. We hit seven meetings, went back down to three, then we hit 11, and now we're on track for 12. Wow. So yeah, we, in that, and every week we highlighted the, the, the change that we made from learning over that week over week, yeah. um, and then how it impacted us, and we track a number of smaller metrics. But I, I, just because right now I'm in the founding of a company phase, we have 11 people, um, so this is the nastiest, hardest problem at the company, which means the founder gets to yeah. be dealing with it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so we always, uh, I always carry this stuff around with me, whatever I'm working on in my life currently. Uh, yeah. And it's, yeah. It's interesting you say that because there's, I think there's a great parallel to software where, you know, every two weeks we get together and we go through our sprint plans and we have something very similar to the chart that you just referenced, where we're showing how do we actually get this software product out on time? And we're tracking that on an every two week basis and where you have it in your pocket, we have it up on monitors so that everyone is able to see how we're progressing to that. And so, you know, it's the idea that if this is really something we care about, let's, let's make sure we've got it really visible to everyone and it's top of mind at, at every point in time. That's so important. You know, I was reading, I was reading something um, in some smart book and they were talking about how 
everybody implements metrics, but then the leader doesn't follow, doesn't live there. Right. And the metrics don't get hit week over week or followed unless if the leader lives there, because everyone looks at like, if you don't have it up as the leader, if you, if you don't care about it and look at it all the time, every day, then yeah. your team will just stop. Yeah, I think that's so true. And, you know, we've got a meeting that we have on a weekly basis with the engineering team and the product management team to go and track how we're, we're trending towards our release. It, it's exactly that reason. It's, it's got to be, uh, you know, I think th this is one of those things, as you said, that you've got to really push from the top down. Yeah, it's, it, you would be, my mind has been so blown in this experience of running this company yeah. that your team is like 100% a mirror of you. Right, like, right. And, like, like yeah. you could not convince me, you could have the most successful person pay them to come in my room and tell me differently. You could, with the number of books I've consumed and people I've talked to and just experiences I've had, there's that, that right now, that is something that's very solidified for me. Um, yeah. So when, when you're having team problems, I first look at the leader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's, it's interesting, you know, as, as I've kind of worked at a number of small companies and larger companies, I think one of the things, and, I, and I've worked at startups as well, you know, I think one of the things is that at a smaller company, one of the things that's so important is figuring out how to manage your time and prioritize your time because there's always new things coming in that are competing for, you know, the next hour of your time or the next day of your time. And you've really got to think about, it's not only what are the top things, but what are the things that you need to solve in order to make other people more productive as well so that you have this multiplier effect. And I think, you know, it's, it's um, for me, kind of coming back to a small company, you know, after, after GE, after ABB, it's been something that's been pretty refreshing because, um, you know, there's just having sort of that prioritized list and, you know, I've got a list on my board that I can see, which is very similar to the list that you carry in your pocket, um, which is just, you know, I know what I've got to get done. And, and uh, I think, you know, for us, it's a way of just staying on track, staying on point, staying really focused. And I think you've so, got that advantage with a smaller company. So one of the things that you do for time management, if I, if I heard you correctly, because you said it so fast and it's, it was like really good, um, <laughs> is you... You identify things that can have the multiplier effect. Can you tell me right. that again? Yeah, you know, I think as you're, we're sort of getting um, a number of requests coming in from a variety of, of sources for our time, what I try to look at are what are the things that, that I can solve so that my teams or other teams then have enough information to go out and, and execute on something. And so the reason for that is while I might work on something that's just assigned to me, I can get it done. If I can solve something that my team can work on, then you get this multiplier effect because the entire team is then enabled to work on something that's a top priority task. So you have a lot of experience. I really like you as a leader, by the way. Like, Thanks. I do a lot of these calls. I meet a lot of people. Um, and I, you're like a knowledge cow, right? <laughs> <laughs> You've got a lot of it. Uh, cows on the mind, right? That's so, right. So uh, maybe you have some skill or insight. When you were at GE, how how could you apply some of the smaller company stuff to what you were doing in a larger organization, or yeah. could you not? And that's why you moved. No. We, so what we did was we um, we started with this initiative called FastWorks, 
And it was really based around this whole concept of fail fast. And what brought it in was that G had found that o- over years and, um, you know, kind of Jack Welsh had this view when he was CEO that, you know, you want to be able to try something and if it doesn't work, that's fine. You've learned something and move on. But the company got away from that a little bit. And so FastWorks was really to bring that back. And it was a whole methodology around what are the ideas that we want to start with? So what's a hypothesis that we have in the marketplace? And how can we go and test this in the market? So who would be good customers to talk to that will either validate or invalidate this hypothesis? And if it's validated, and the hypothesis would be around where do we want to go? Where is there an opportunity in the marketplace to win, to, to build a product that we can then scale? And, and so we would then go out and test this hypothesis. And if it resonated, then we would actually start to build it out. But in order to test the hypothesis, we only needed a, a prototype, uh, something to give the customer an appreciation for the solution we wanted to build. And so it wasn't a big investment but we would gain really valuable feedback. And so um, we started to run this. We started to run it uh, in a variety of different industries across the company. And we had FastWorks coaches that would really help different teams to be able to run this so that we could scale this FastWorks concept across GE. Um, And for us, it really, it was a way of, you know, what I talked about earlier is how do you take a large company and act like a small company? Because if you're a small company, if you're a startup, you've got to be able to test a number of hypotheses in the market quickly, uh, or else you may go out of business. And, Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's this was kind of the approach that we that we use for that purpose. It's amazing. So with the podcast, we had people um, they were asking about like how do we get the, these like little bits of advice to to our managers and get them to improve and grow. And I was like, I don't know, but. <laughs> <laughs> they they kept asking. And so I said, I, I don't know, let's build this basic product that built in like 10 days, deployed it to some people who had yeah. asked for it. We, we came up with this guy concept of like leadership challenges. Just do one thing to improve as a leader every week. And here's a leadership challenge. Right. But then, and we got customers and I was like, wow, I was actually really surprised. And uh, within, I'd never made a sale before. So like I YouTube sales videos. Right. And within three months, I sold $100,000 in annual recurring revenue. Right. Nice. I was like, yeah. oh, I was like, what? I can, I can make a sale. So then I went and raised venture capital and all this stuff. And uh, now, now we're growing, but the amount of testing, even on like a granular area, like who's the purchaser of this product? Why are they purchasing? How do they want to be charged? Right. You know, who are my, like, who are the competitors? And based on looking at their advertising, I can tell the area of the market that they found to be fruitful because they're, you know, mm-hmm. They're all, if you look at 20 of them, they're all saying the same two or three things. Right, right. And so I kind of leveraged that looking at competitors advertising to find out what they've already learned by being in business for 10 years. Sure. But it's amazing at how fine that line is when you start to really focus in on it. There's, you could give a business that's just as simple as leadership training, 20 or 30 different business models. Right. And it's, it's like, which one's converting the best, which ones, you know? And so that's what, that's what this whole thing is about is we know why people buy, we know yeah. how they're buying. It's just like, which is the most scalable model um, to put money into and to an approach the market fully. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we're failing fast. 
It's you know it's it's funny. There's there's almost there was almost this culture around failing is a bad thing, and failing is only really a bad thing if it's something you don't learn from. And you know I think part of what FastWorks did was embra really embrace that idea that you actually gain so much insight insight from from failing that it's it's how you're going to build your successes because you start to learn about. You know, you learn about where customers are in their journey, what they're looking for at that point in time. And you might have an idea that is a great idea, but it's the wrong time for it. And so, you know, you start to think about this journey where, where is a customer today? What's the journey and path that they want to be on over the next couple of years? And how do you build kind of a roadmap that parallels that so that you can provide them something today, but customers really want a, a a, a vendor that's going to be a partner that's going to work with them on solutions that enable them to go all the way with them on that journey. And so you can only really get there if you have a, a great understanding about their challenges, where they are today, the market dynamics. And so we've really, as we tried to, to put together our, our hypotheses around different types of solutions, we tried to incorporate all those different factors. And you know what gave me a lot of confidence in this area? Because I know the, the buzzword is the fail fast. But what I latched on to, because I'm like big nerd, um, <laughs> I like watch like the Cosmo series. Like I like all that type of right, stuff. Right, right. Is the scientific method. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, has that been around for a while? And that is exactly what we're talking about. It's like, let's take 10 things that we think may work. Let's like a scientist doesn't sit there and like beat themselves up all day. Oh, I'm failing. I'm failing. I'm failing. Like what's right. the next batch? What's the next hypothesis? What can I test? What can I measure? What can I improve? And so yeah. I take a, I take a, an unemotional, uh, and it's, it's incredibly hard. Um, look at it like that. It's like, Hey, I've got, we've got 10 ideas. Let's not attach to mm -hmm. That's like, that's so 1990s to attach to your idea. <laughs> it's like, let, let's not to attach to it. Cause we want to like make money and change the world. Like let's just right. put them out there and, yeah. and put money at each of them to see which one works. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, that's right. You can't, you know, if you get too attached to it, I think there's a tendency to try that idea and to stick with it and, and say, well, if I give it another month, it's going to pay off where instead of, you know, calling it what it is and saying, you know, this again, it might be a great idea, just not the right point in time and just moving on to the next thing. I know it's so hard though, because you love them, you love your ideas. <laughs> That's you know? right. But if you love them, you've got to let them go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So what? When you have you have sixty people in technology, not or sixty people all of ag data. No, sixty people in technology. Okay. We're a company of uh, about three hundred people. About three hundred people. So what? What's going to stand? Like right now, you have your team of probably four or five people, right? That you. Um, that report directly to you. And then you have it kind of structured. I know it's right. flat. I know it's flat, right. but right. nonetheless, yeah. as flat as it may be, there's still some structure there. Absolutely. <laughs> what, like, what stands out to you as somebody that you want to invest in? Because we all have, like, there will always be 10, 5, 10 people, but there's, there's always two people in the back of your mind that, like, stand out yeah. to you, and I'm sure yeah. they, their names pop in your head. But, like, what, what are their qualities that make you want to invest into them? Yeah, so it's really interesting question. And so for me, one of the things that I really think about are people that are capable of being drivers. And so by driver, what I mean is someone that can take 
a topic. It could be, you know, we've been working on our, our go to market. And so how do we define standard offerings that we, we can take to, we can pitch to customers. So that's on the sales side, but also on the engineering side, how do we implement those offerings? And so we need to have standardization around it so we can scale. And so it could be somebody that's responsible for driving that type of a, an initiative. It could be somebody that's responsible for driving a component of our product. Um, it could be someone that's responsible for driving the overall release. But you've got to be able to, to take a challenge and decompose that into what needs to happen in order to be successful. It needs to, you need to then be able to communicate and work with other people because very rarely is something is it something where you're the only one involved in getting this piece of work done. You need to work with other people. You need to be able to communicate the problem. You need to articulate what is the uh, what's the responsibility that everyone else has in order to achieve that objective. Uh, so I really look for a lot of those people that can drive and execute because for us that's that's again how we scale as a business and that's one of the ways that we can run a flat organization by having people that can just drive initiatives and tasks to completion. So I'm going to give you a hypothetical. I'm, I'm really going to use sure. you as a resource as much as I can while I have you. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's say, cause I get questions. I get lots. We have a big audience. We get lots of questions all the time. And um, I'm going to kind of share a little, I'm just going to kind of go with it. So yeah. I got this, this question, uh, person came into a company like they were newer in the company but they were a senior leader and they were um the people on their team weren't where they needed them to be right mm -hmm. like he came in he inherited a team and so what this individual did was they were just a little bit shy about right. not like wanting to get rid of people or anything like that um, but at the same time they knew they had a team that wasn't capable to execute the vision of the leadership which right means you like it's very hard to change behavior um right. it's way easier to find people with the behaviors you already need mm -hmm. um so my sort of advice was i think it's pretty clear that you need to adjust the people on your team mm -hmm. um based off of what the data i was given in in the in the conversation right, right. but uh then they started asking about like how do you do that effectively how do you do that without killing morale and things like that what what comes to your mind as I'm talking about this? Yeah, you know, I think what's important is to, you know, the, sometimes we we kind of look at the, the the broader organization and say, you know what, we don't have any of the right people, and it could just be that you need to bring in some leadership um, to help to help um, create the culture that you're looking for. Um, and so one of the first things I do is really assess that at, at the leadership level positions, do we have the right people to drive the behavior, the culture that we want in the organization? Um, and I think that because that relates back to the overall vision and strategy that you're trying to drive as a company. Um, then from there, um, you know, I, I would say it, sometimes it could be that you have the right you have the right players, you don't have the right manager, the right coach to be able to bring that out of them. Um, so, so that's kind of the first layer I look at. Um, and then from there, I'll, I'll look to see, you know, once I've, once I've uh, had that, that uh, leadership person in place, um, how's the team reacting to it? Um, so that's, that's a lot of it. Um, 
you know, one of the things that we did as we went through, and I, I did this at GE as well, we went through culture. And so we defined, you know, what is the culture that we want to put in place as an organization and, and how, you know, which is how do we treat each other? How do we reward good performance? Um, how do we, uh, how do we, um, how do we set goals and how do we work towards those goals? Um, you know, and, and so one of the things that I've always looked at and, and kind of there's a, taken a lot of good pieces from is, um, you know, Netflix have published their culture. It's on slide sorter and um, they go through a number of different aspects of a very broad based culture. And so, you know, what I've always used is I've used that as an example to say, here's what one company has done for their culture. We are not going to, we are not that company and we're not going to replicate that culture, but it's, it's something that kind of gets the, the thoughts going in terms of what, what do we want our culture to be? And so I've never said, this is our culture. I've always used that collective team to be able to get together, work together and define it. And, and I think, Having bringing everybody together to define that culture is something where you you get this um, this ability, you get everyone on board you get everyone on the train moving in the right direction and I think that's another another um, another topic of how do you start to achieve the vision that you're looking for at a company level you know you've got to be able to get everyone pointed in the same direction and, and culture is something that's helped me do that. So, so I've, I've kind of, just to summarize, I kind of think of it in two ways. You got to get the leadership, but you've also got to create this from the bottom up ground swelling around the mission that we're on. And for me, culture's helped there. When are you writing your book? <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> I want to include some of this advice. So I've gone around and, you know, I've done hundreds of these interviews with yeah. technology leaders all over the world. I want to include some of these tidbits from that you've given me. And so we're, we're putting together this book called The Greatest Technology. Well, it's called, we're not, we're not sure of the title, but it's either gonna be like Habits and Patterns of the Greatest Technology Leaders on the Planet um, or Everything But Code, a couple, right. a couple ideas for the title of it. But essentially it's going to include, you know, different pieces of advice in different areas like culture, hiring, you know, engineering leadership um, right. from NASA, Microsoft, you know, ag data, you. Uh, so is it, we'll put that, that's cool, right? We include that. Yeah, that'd, that'd be fantastic. Shout yeah, out. Great. It's yeah. cool that we label you one of the greatest technology leaders in the world. <laughs> exactly. Is that okay? That's <laughs> absolutely okay. All right, cool. We'll send a copy of the book to your family as well. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> no, that, I just thought it would be a cool project. So was, uh, we were sitting here looking at all the advice that we have and all the content and everything that we have. And I was like, you know what'd be cool? Like a book that breaks it all down by category. Um, so that people can just see some like really refined advice. Um, yeah, you know, it's a bestseller, right? It's like a nice, yeah. it's a nice reference book. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. You, you brought me in the audience, like I would say level 10 value. <laughs> Excellent. I'm glad. I really enjoyed it. Yes. I'm definitely going to put you on the list of uh, when I'm up in the Carolinas. Uh, if I stop through your way, I'm going to come by the office, say hello and shake your hand. Yeah, definitely. That'd yeah. be great. Yeah. Look forward to it. Good luck with your uh, interview. Maybe that architect this afternoon is the person you're looking for. Yeah, I hope so. We've uh, we actually went to, to dinner on Friday, so I'm pretty hopeful. Oh, this is part two. Yeah, this is part. This oh, is oh the second date. The, the team. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See how see how this individual does. Uh, yeah. Very cool. Now, do you do you usually do that? Was this like a referral from a friend or like? No. So um, 
they've actually got another offer. And okay. so this is where I wanted to um, really sit down, spend some time with them, um, you know, get to know them at a more personal level and talk about where we're going as a company. And, uh, and so we did that on Friday. We talked for about 90 minutes. And then uh, this is part two to meet the rest of the team. Nice. Well, I've, look, I would work for you. I think you're a fantastic leader. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Good luck with everything you're doing. I really enjoyed the 45 minutes. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you're going to be wildly successful too. Oh, I appreciate the kind words. All right. Have a fantastic day, Keith. Thanks, you too. Take See care. You. Bye. Bye.